Dr. Tony Wirth, who earned his PhD in computer science and in algorithms at Princeton, while driving souped-up cars with driving gloves. He has rejected a date on the grounds that a woman was attempting to eat an apple in that said car. And when his mother was asked what his oddest pastime was, she replied, everything is quirky. I'd like to work, welcome Dr. Tony Worth. So uh, you can tell I'm the uh, computer science lecturer because I showed up in a suit. And uh, strangely enough, this is actually the way I give lectures at university because, I mean, who likes the way computer scientists dress or smell for that matter? Um, so I was trying to think about a computer science hero and it's a little bit difficult because most of our founders are still alive. Right? In fact, Carlton grabbed the obvious one, the tragic life and death of Alan Turing, two uh, laboratory stories ago. So I was thinking through whom I ought to choose as a, as a great hero of computing. And I thought about one of my mentors, Bob Tarjan, but he's very much alive. He's also the same age as my father, and I didn't like to sort of think about him on the other side. And then I realised, well, there are people who are not computer scientists but are graduates. So did, how many of you knew that Red Simons was a graduate of my uh, department at the University of Melbourne? But he's already expressed things about his ego some years ago. So I won't talk about him. <laughs> So let's think about Alan Turing. Alan Turing died, uh, so it is said, from eating an apple that had cyanide. And interestingly enough, there's a computer company whose logo looks like an apple with a piece bitten out of it. When this was put to Steve Jobs, he said, no, he hadn't actually thought of that, but he wished he had. So yes, I'm going to talk about Steve Jobs. Now, around the same time that Steve Jobs died, uh, about a week later, I think, Dennis Ritchie died. Does anyone who know who Dennis Ritchie is or was? Tony. The Unix man, that's right. He wrote, uh, he invented the C language and he was one of the, the uh, authors or, or developed, um, inventors of the Unix operating system, which of course, fascinatingly enough, is now a fundamental part of MacOS. And did anyone care that he had died at the time? Did anyone even know? How many of you even knew who he was? We had two hands, I think. And yet, his system's used everywhere. He'd even won a Turing Award in 1983, but that wasn't enough to make him famous. The press was only interested in Steve Jobs. And therefore, so should we be. <laughs> when uh, I, I made a new friend in 1986, he's still a very good friend of mine, and uh, so what were we there, nine, 10, something like that? And I went to visit him at his home, and he had his bedroom set up as a shop to sell Apple computers. Now, I mean, that may say something a little bit about him, but it also shows you something of the fascination already for a small child of the Apple Macintosh at that era. I first used an Apple Mac around 1986, and it was truly mind-blowing. I'd previously played a little text machine where there was a little game you could play that sh where you shot a duck or something by entering a number, and that didn't seem very exciting. And here suddenly was this machine that you had a mouse, you could move it around, it did things, and you had beautiful Mac paint, and you, know, you could draw all sorts of useless stuff, but it seemed kind of cute when you were eight years old, or whatever I was, nine years old. And it had those beautiful fonts, which I'll say more about later. So the Apple Macintosh really was a, quite an awakening for me. I felt very proud that we had one at home, although I realized that we only had it because Dad had kind of borrowed it from the university for <laughs> a couple of years. Still, I was cooler than the other kids who had their textual devices. Um, 
Apple still causes excitement. My first PhD student, when he uh, wrote in his thesis, he of course acknowledged my brilliant supervision, but he also said how much he enjoyed the weekly conversations we had about Apple products. And that's true, because feature. Uh, so unfortunately were also the Geelong Hawthorne games, which haven't been going quite so well. Um, when I have meetings with my head of department, he, on the other hand, is not an Apple fan. And he will frequently start a meeting by telling me a story about how he'd contradicted some friend of his who loves Apple and said, you know, the MacBook Air will start up immediately from scratch. And he'll point out that his Windows box from 10 years ago is much, much faster. There's the fight with Samsung, which seems to have gone on for years. There's the fact that my grandmother, who's sitting somewhere here, there she is, just turned 87, and she texts me on her iPhone 4. <laughs> Who could invent such machines that cause such excitement in a nine-year-old, cause such anger with my head of department, weekly discussions with my PhD student, and have these beautiful interfaces that allow us to communicate when I was overseas recently? He really was thinking about computers for humans. Uh, and, and in many ways, his sacrifice choice. So you always get some sort of IT nerd who says, oh, I can't fiddle with this and I can't fiddle with that. But he sacrificed choice for beauty in many ways. And Malcolm Gladwell says that we should not think of him so much as an inventor, but more as a, the, the perfect refiner of our era. So Steve Jobs was interestingly the product of an academic couple. And I, I always love couples like this. A professor at the University of Wisconsin and his student. Fantastic. And unfortunately, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, her parents weren't too thrilled about this relationship. So they adopted, uh, she adopted uh, Steve out. But she was determined to get um, a family that had college education. And she had almost sewn this up when at the last moment, uh, these parents-to-be, adoptive parents-to-be, decided they really wanted a girl instead of a boy, so Steve wasn't sent to them, and she had to find someone else at the last minute. And in fact, this couple didn't, only had high school, but they made an undertaking that they would send Steve to college, and I'll say more about that soon. Now, another twist in this is that, in fact, his parents, his biological parents, did, in fact, marry not long after they'd adopted Steve out, and they had a second child. Uh, Mona Simpson, who was a writer, and she and Steve met when she was around 25, something like that. I can't remember how that made him, around 30, I guess. Uh, and interesting enough, he then later found his sister, they, they met, they became friends, and he interacted with his biological mother also. But he refused forever to interact with his biological father, even when uh, at the end of his life. Oddly enough, his father apparently later drifted out of academia and then ended up running restaurants and ran one in Silicon Valley where he knew Steve Jobs as a generous tipper but actually had no idea that it was his son. Now, given Steve Jobs' unusual, well, perhaps not so unusual introduction to the world, the adoption and so forth, it seems interesting that he allegedly fathered a child in his early 20s but then denied paternity on the grounds that he was sterile for some time and refused to give any money. And only after about two or three years did he actually pay up. He also apparently dated Joan Baez, partly because he had a thing for Bob Dylan, and he thought that would bring him <laughs> closer. Steve Jobs was very much a product of Silicon Valley. His uh, family moved uh, to Mountain View when he was five years old. Mountain View is the home of, everybody knows? Are there some nerds? You ought to know, Michael. Google, Google thank you. And then went to high school in Cupertino, which is the home of, Apple, more of you know that, very good. 
So he really was a product of that neighbourhood. And in fact, he, uh, he was introduced to Steve Wozniak. He's led a business partner through a neighbour and they made computers when they were at high school. A beautiful era, the early computing days. He then went to Reed College, I think further north on the west coast of the US. But he didn't really like it very much. And he said, you know, I thought it was all very expensive. And even though my parents had always wanted me to go to college, he said that he, he sort of felt that he ought to drop out. But he somehow had this habit of hanging around the campus, even though he wasn't formally enrolled. Uh, of course, he joins the great pantheon of IT greats, such as Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg, dropping out of college. Except that, interestingly, Bill Gates actually has a, a paper with some very important computer scientists, not, very, uh, not known by many people. Uh, Steve Jobs lived on the floor of friends' apartments. He went to the Hare Krishna temple to get free food. He tried psychedelic drugs. He got very involved in Zen Buddhism, I think later had a Zen Buddhist wedding. In about 1973, he was employed at Atari. Does anyone remember them? <laughs> a friend of mine and I, we, 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 he still has his old Atari box, and we like to get together and play those old games from the 80s. It's beautiful nostalgia. I'm, I'm very much a creature of the 80s. I love it in the 80s, including the sad computer games. But uh, he, he joined Atari, and people said he was very often the smartest person in the room, and of course, always wanted to let people know that that was the case. The two Steves then made a company called Apple in 1976. He then, interestingly enough, decided to recruit John Scully from Pepsi in 1983 with this beautiful line, do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of the life or do you want to come and change the world with me? Not too long, these two big uh, heads sort of clashed and Steve, uh, the, uh, Steve and John had an argument and in fact the board started with Scully and so Steve was, Jobs was kicked out of, in some sense, his own company. Prior to that, he'd of course made this um, uh, famous Super Bowl advertisement from 1984, saying that 1984 would not be like 1984. He, he, so this was rather disturbing for him. He'd uh, been kicked out of this company that had, uh, he had $2 billion, I think it was worth, and had 4,000 employees. And yet, in some ways, he said it was the best thing that ever happened to him. He then founded another company called Next, of course, and I have a little badge with the next, but I, I forgot to sort of wear it tonight. Uh, given to me by, of course, the guy who had the Apple store in his house. Who else would own something like that? And found this company called Next with $7 million, lost it all immediately, got bailed out by Ross Perot, who later popped up as a presidential candidate in 1992, but in an earlier life was, in fact, the sort of record-breaking salesman for IBM. The first machine they released in 1990 cost $10,000 for a workstation. The machines did at least have magnesium cases. <laughs> and Tim Berners-Lee developed the World Wide Web on one of these next machines. Some years later, Apple tried making new operating systems with beautiful names like Copeland and Gershwin. But, and my friend and I, Luke and I, were all very excited about this. But of course, they didn't come to anything despite the great name. So what happened, Apple eventually had to uh, eat some humble pie and bought out Next. And of course, eventually, uh, Steve turned the tables, kicked out the CEO, and became ICEO, whatever that means, for three years. <laughs> he also said at the time when they released the first iMac a year or two later that the back of our computer looks better than the front of anyone else's. <laughs> Steve Jobs had a habit of getting into petty fights. Um, IT nerd, what can you expect? Um, Wiley once published an unauthorised biography of him, and for several years afterwards, he refused to have any Wiley products on any of the <laughs> Apple stores. 
Michael Dell said that if he were in charge of Apple in 1997, he would have just sold off all the assets and sort of shared it with the employees. So some years later, or maybe 10 years later, Steve Jobs sent an email to his employees saying, well, look at us now. We've got a bigger market capitalization than Dell. And what would he have done? So nothing if not a little bitter. He also used to drive around California, uh, Silicon Valley in his uh, SL55 AMG. Uh, beautiful car, but oddly enough, never had plates. There's apparently a law in California that says in the first six months you don't need to display plates. So he'd just lease a new one every six months. <laughs> he also had a uniform, of course. I don't know if you remember this, the black turtleneck. Uh, that's very famous. But interestingly enough, down here he wore, his, he wore his Levi 501s. And it strikes me as odd for a man who loved technology that he would choose butterfly jeans. <laughs> so, in a way, he's really a hero. I mean, he's caused such excitement in so many people. And I, I was told to make this talk comedic, but I decided that I really wanted to switch to something a little more tragic at the end. Some of you may have seen he's, uh, he's very famous for his speech at the Stanford graduation in 2005. And he spoke about three things. He spoke about calligraphy. He spoke about restarting his life after the, the being kicked out of Apple and about his health. And you know, that was nice. He had a talk in three parts. And it reminds me of a, a weird line from the beginning of Michael Kirby's speech when he said, like Caesar's Gaul, my uh, speech is divided into three parts. This is allegedly Australia's most intelligent jurist. About calligraphy, he pointed out that the Mac would never have had the beautiful fonts it had, had it not been for the fact he attended, when he was a dropout student, the calligraphy classes at Reed College. He talked about the fact that he was able to fall in love once he'd been kicked out of Apple, both with his profession and, indeed, he met his wife. But he also talked about his illnesses, which had then been acknowledged somewhat. He said that one ought to leave, ought to, uh, he loved the quote that you ought to live each day as if it were your last because at least some point you're going to be right. And he reported the fact that in, 2000, in 2005 he said, well, I'm healthy now. I've been, I've been cured. Now, interestingly, if you look at the, of course, I did my great research, not only by not reading all the 600 pages of biography, but also by looking at the wiki pages. And there's some interesting things on the wiki page by medical scientists who say, Steve Jobs' faith in alternative medicine likely cost him his life. He refused surgery. He actually he had pancreatic cancer, which normally is about the worst thing you can be told, except he, oddly enough, had a strain that wasn't particularly brilliant. He refused surgery at the beginning. Instead, he went on a vegan diet. He tried acupuncture. He tried herbs. He tried bowel cleansing and a psychic. At the end of his speech, he quotes a magazine that he liked, whose last, uh, the back cover of the back page said, stay hungry, stay foolish. Sadly enough, I think with regard to his health, he followed the latter. 